This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You probably heard the story. I'm guessing you've heard something about this this week. This story about a baby that was born, which of course makes sense. It is Christmas week. That's what the whole story is about for Christmas, right? A baby being born. But this is a different story. In Tennessee, a baby was born nearly 25 years after it was conceived. It's a remarkable story. It was after conception. It was frozen as an embryo and then recently implanted. And the strangest part of the story, perhaps, is that the mother of this now baby was conceived almost at the same time as the baby 25 years later that she is carrying. It can kind of bend your brain, the science that we're now hearing about and, well, that people are doing. It is it is remarkable stuff. Um Dr. Tom Hannum is the founder of the Hannum Fertility Center in Toronto. He sat on the board of the Canadian Fertility and Andrology Society. He's a member of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, the Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology of Canada, and the European Society for Human Reproduction and Endocrinology. It's a lot to say. Now, he's also a Mac grad, so we know that he is especially brilliant when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> uh, Dr. Hannum, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I don't know at this point if I am supposed to be shocked by the stuff that goes on, but this one really blew me away. Should it? I don't know. There's so much change in medicine so quickly all the time, isn't there? You feel like every every few months you hear about something new. But I think the uh, the, the interesting thing about this was just the, the just the number of years that uh, this embryo was cryopreserved before transfer. It seems like, and again, to someone who's not a scientist, who's just whatever, it seems like something that has been frozen that long could not somehow still be alive in some way. You're not wrong. In fact, in in uh, and uh, in Britain for a, a good long time, they've had a law that uh, they have to simply discard embryos after five years for fears that uh, that could there could be what they call micro degradation of the DNA, so that the DNA just isn't as stable as we would like it to be when when frozen. I, you know, we, we're saying frozen. I don't mean frozen like we have in our refrigerators at home. That's cold. Uh, these embryos are kept much colder than that, so things are much more stable than that. But we're talking years in this case, twenty-five years. Well, you mentioned it, so let me ask you that because this is one of the this is maybe the stupidest question you will ever be asked in your entire <laughs> career. But I thought about this today when I was reading this story about the length of time, and I thought, you know what? What the heck? I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, yeah. If I put a steak in my freezer and leave it there for a short period of time, it's fine. But if I leave it for longer and longer and longer. It gets burned, freezer burnt, it gets damaged. And I know that an embryo is not like a steak, but I'm thinking to myself, the longer it's in there, why does the same thing not happen to this? When we put uh, things in the freezer, things are actually still going on. And a, a lot of cells... Our, most of our cells have a lot of water in them, and as we all know, water crystallizes when it freezes. So, and when it crystallizes, it gets bigger. We know that from our ice cube tray. Well, if, if water crystallizes in a cell, it breaks the cell. And that's what's happening to your steak. The, the, the cells are slowly popping, and uh, over time, you just get, a, you, 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 you get something that just isn't what at all, what you put into the freezer. So, the same thing can happen to an embryo. The difference is, we're doing our best. We're, we're, we're putting all kinds of cryoprotectants around embryos, and they work pretty well. In fact, m- embryos are very stable indeed until the last moment. It's right as you're thawing the embryo. I think even a few years ago this wouldn't work, but, but we've really worked out how to, f- how to thaw embryos, and even as they pass through those warmer temperatures, the cells uh, uh, seem to be stable. Where the, the, the cells are not breaking up um, because of crystallization, and we're getting healthy embryos. How do you thaw a 
an embryo that is frozen. And I mean, I honestly, I, we obviously know that the, the temperature is way below what's going on in our freezers. But how do you bring a, a, an embryo that is that cold to a point where it can be a living thing again? Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's incredible that it works. But um, uh, the... the, the uh, the physics is that if you freeze things fast enough, water doesn't crystallize. So it's ent- entirely counterintuitive because it's not our everyday lived experience. But if you, can, if you can do it quickly enough, the water never forms crystals. And then if you thaw it quickly enough, it doesn't crystallize on the way back out either. And so you can, you can actually freeze, freeze life or freezing embryos and things just pick right back up. Um, it doesn't work for larger organs because you, you simply can't get the freezing into the middle of us fast enough. So how wonderful for medicine if we could cryopreserve a heart or other larger organs, but we, we, we don't have the technology to do that. But embryos, of course, are microscopic. They're very small. And um, increasingly, we're, we're effective at, at, at freezing them when they're just a few cells old. 25 years ago, these, these embryos were frozen when they, there were only eight cells to begin with. Wow. So, um, um, so it's, it's, uh, as long as the uh, technology um, is, is structured in a supportive way, um, you can really keep those cells stable. So theoretically, uh, this would be what we're talking about with cryogenic freezing at the other end of the life spectrum. It's just not available to be done yet. We can't hand solo someone yet. <laughs> no, I, I am personally not signing myself up for one of those cryoprotecting banks. I, too, would like to live forever, but um, haven't yet found the, uh, the elixir. I don't think it's the freezer, not for us. But when we're looking at, 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 these, at these embryos that are just a few cells in size, uh, it clearly can be effective. And let's acknowledge, too, this was, this was an exceptional case. Unfortunately, most embryos do, do suffer um, the longer they're cryopreserved. We uh, feel comfortable counseling our patients that, that an embryo can be frozen for years. Um, it gives people all kinds of choices now, but um, uh, uh, 25 is longer than we would normally uh, want, would, would, would ever expect. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with fertility expert Dr. Tom Hannon about this baby that was born in the States 25 years after conception. It became, the child was made, was frozen, the embryo was frozen, and has now been implanted and born. And it's, it's such a fascinating story because, again, the science to me is just mind-blowing. But, Doctor, you were saying before the break about how this is very difficult. This is not, this is an unusual situation because of the length of of time. The story that I've read, all the stories I've read about this, none of them say anything about problems that this child has. There's no suggestion that there are birth defects or developmental delays or anything. But for someone, for a, for a, a structure, a body, a cellular structure that's been frozen for that long, is there a chance yeah. down the road we're going to discover some? Scott, it's a great question, and, and it, it turns out that uh, we've got a lot of experience with having frozen thawed embryos for a, a lot of years now, and um, and uh, uh, frozen thawed embryos uh, uh, may in fact some, uh, be healthier in many circumstances than freshly transferred embryos. It's it's not that freezing helps the embryos; it's that you can optimize the the the, the mum's health before you ever put an embryo in. You can make sure her hormones are balanced; she's in good health. And uh, we actually preferentially will transfer frozen embryos now. You, 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 you worry that there could be a, a damage done to the embryo, and, and you're right, there could be. There, no technology is perfect. Um, but um, 
it's 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 what happens is if it doesn't work, the the cell simply doesn't survive, and so uh, uh, it's very it's a very black and white phenomenon. It appears that when we're doing frozen embryo transfers, that um, as long as the embryo uh, appears to be healthy, it is healthy, and the and the chance of that baby being healthy is as is is as good or possibly better than if we'd never done the freezing at all. But considering they are so tiny and the number of cells is so small at the time of freezing, what if one or two cells don't survive? Would that be enough to kill it, or could that cause damages? Well, you know, we know we all have friends who are who are, are monozygotic twins, right? They're uh, they're identical twins, and they were once one embryo, and they split in half. An embryo can lose half its cells and end up being a, a perfectly healthy person after it. So, not that we would wish that on an embryo being prior preserved, but uh, no, it's they're quite they're quite robust. We know that there are well, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of embryo frozen embryos around the world. More than that, maybe. You know, um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're touching on something that's quite important. These these people who are really hoping to build their families are uh, 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 once complete. There there will be embryos sometimes that uh, that they're not they don't know how to uh, uh, what what to do with them. You know, especially if they feel uh, emotionally, morally responsible to those lives, it can be increasingly complicated. So along with the success in our field of of these opportunities that we're providing to couples who haven't seen them before, uh, there's also arguably the burden of of responsibility responsibility to frozen embryos. Well, and one of the interesting things about this particular story was that this couple, as I understand, this is not his sperm and her egg. They decided they, what they call adopted this embryo. It was someone else's. It was just there in freezing. And they said, we will take this on. Is that the norm? When you have people come to you, are, are, are people willing, if they're having trouble giving birth, willing more often than not to say, yeah, there's one there. I'll just use that one. Or will they go to the ends of the earth for their own to be involved. I assume it's the latter. We, uh, everybody's different. Everyone's approaching this from from a different place. I think many people, when they think about having a family, they're thinking about having it with their own sperm and their own eggs. But that's not true for everybody. Uh, it's not everyone. It's not everyone's opportunity either. And so, you know, notionally, there'd be a lot of uh, a lot of frozen embryos and a lot of people who would who would love to uh, adopt them. There's a there's a service in Ontario, actually actually based out of Hamilton, that's uh, that's that's doing just that. They're trying to match people who are willing to donate embryos and and people who are. Willing to adopt them. It's the new adoption. It's a new adoption, but as you say, it's new, and so it's 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 legally complicated and uh, so complex so that uh, uh, that not all fertility clinics are willing to participate. Where a lot of us are looking for some direction from uh, from you know gu- guidance at the provincial or national level as to as to, uh, as to whether it's the right thing to do or not. Medicine's changing quickly. Our field's changing quickly. So these are uh, these are problems that weren't con- no one no one had thought about uh, you know for a long time, but. It's increasingly becoming a, a reality now that we have successful frozen embryo programs. This, this is quite a story, 25 years, but it, was, it came from a, a, a routine clinic, a, a routine setting. This is um, some things that you hear about in the media, they're, they're one-offs and they're crazy stories, but this is actually what's happening in this story is, is a variant of what we're seeing um, in practice every day. And I was just going to, we got to finish, but I was just going to ask that, is this a case of science making a massive breakthrough that they can do this with such an old embryo, or is this simply that this particular embryo, for reasons we don't understand, was able yeah. to sustain that kind no. of freezing. Yeah, no, I would say that this is this is emblematic of, of, of successful freezing programs that have really spread around the world, and the and and the top labs these days are all having great success with embryo thawing in ways that we didn't see even three four years ago. It's uh, it's just it's, it's it's really showing the world what's going on in fertility clinics these days for for fertility preservation and, and giving people more choices to uh, build the families the way they'd hoped to. 
Dr. Tom Hamm, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Scott, real pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, If you want to read more about this, if you haven't seen this story, go on Google. All you have to type in is embryo. I promise you all the stories will come up if you just type in the word embryo. Fascinating, modern, crazy, advanced science that none of the rest of us understand, but just unbelievable stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Several months ago, my trusty old, and I say old, but trusty old iPhone 5, which has seemed to have been working just fine for the longest time, began to lag. And I mean lag, slow down. Things were not working very well. Stuff that used to happen really quickly started taking forever to do. And I had always heard rumors that Apple would do stuff to the phone with its programs to slow things down, which would basically force me then to go out and buy the new technology and spend a lot of money. You've heard those too, I'm sure. We all figured, I don't know if it's true or not, just kind of rumors until it starts happening to your phone. Well, now Apple is saying, yes, we did slow your phone down. We did. You're not imagining. We slowed your phone down. Now, they won't say or they're not saying that they did it to make you buy a new phone. They have an explanation for why they did it. But I must tell you, I still wonder. Here to help us with this, a man who knows as much about this as anybody, short of Steve Jobs, I'll say. Uh, Adam Oldfield, you hear him every Friday on 900 CHML with Bill Kelly for Tech Talk. He joins me now. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. So I am am very cynical and very skeptical now that Apple has acknowledged that they're slowing our phones down. I remain skeptical that it's for the reasons they say, but explain, if you can, off the top, what their reason is for why they say my phone was slowing down. Well, there's their reasons for slowing down, okay, is the fact that with each security update, you're going to be able to have the opportunity of protecting your phone, okay? So when they say that, and, and when they say protect your phone, there's been a big issue with regards to the fact that uh, you know, malware, Apple has been susceptible and it's growing uh, a success. And the app store with billions and billions of apps, there's been a lot of Trojan horses and malware that is, uh, uh, I would say, available to be logged or loaded onto your phone. Now, in time, a lot of our operating systems getting updated. We, we, we've gone from the iPhone 4 to the 5 to the 6. We've had a few C's in there. We had a few S's. Uh, you know, upgrading across the line you know, I, I think the, the key thing about why they're doing it or what reasons they claim they're doing it is for your own protection. However, you know, it, it's a bit of a cross because they come out with this and it's pretty easy to prove now that these iPhone upgrades with security features are slowing down and causing that problem you, you mentioned just earlier. And that is primarily because, you know, we can assume it's, well, they just want us to buy a new one. Well, of course they do. That's that's the whole goal, and this has been a conspiracy been said for a while, right? So now when we see this, we've got ourselves a problem with respect to, is this hindering why we should upgrade our phones? And truth be told, you do need to upgrade it because there are security features. The catch of it all is that they're going to basically force you in a position that could be hindering the performance of your phone, meaning you're going to have to buy a new one. So... It's for the reasons of security, protection, giving you the ability to know that you're getting the maximum value out of your phone, 
but in reality, the upgrades are if you're using a 4 or a 5, anyone using a 4 or 5 right now, any upgrades you're making will definitely put it into slow molasses mode. Well, and they're saying, the other thing they're saying is that this is a battery issue. So if your battery starts to get old, we have to slow the phone down so that your battery is not overloaded because if you don't want your phone to crash all the time, your battery simply can't handle all the stuff that it was supposed to handle once upon a time because it's now aged and decrepit, and therefore we're actually doing you a favor. Are you buying that? No, not at all. And the reason why I share this is that Apple has been, you brought up the comment of the next person knowing uh, Apple more than, than me is Steve Jobs. There was a thing about Apple that always had it as it just works. One of the things Jobs wanted when he was alive was always to have a hardware that would be functional and capable of always working for the consumer. You wouldn't have to have the problems of upgrading and drivers. And why, why that was set up, even when he launched the phone originally, is that he believed it should work seamlessly. Now, with this whole battery slowdown, it may explode and give your, your chances of battery uh, uh, running properly. A pro- all, that is all hokey paka. First of all, <laughs> Apple, Apple has created a very, very seamless, capable system. It's the fastest, truthfully, and I'm an Android user, and you and I have spoke of that before on the show. I am, an, I am truly a believer of the Android. Yet I can tell you without fail, anyone that said to me, should I get an Apple? Should I get an Android? And I would always ask them, do you want it just to work? And do you not want to fiddle and fart around with this thing and just make it function? And if the answer is yes, and most do say that, of course, but once you get into business and all the details, I say get an Apple. It is the simplest, easiest system to use. Why? Because I've been using Apple desktop, laptop, iPads, and I usually get a lot of longevity out of them. I had a laptop that was over six years old. The operating system upgraded. It was capable of managing it. Today, my same computer that is three years old is no longer supported. And I'm talking about desktops and laptops right now. I mean, look at this. The Mac Pro, which was a uh, um, not the iMac, the Mac Pro, which is a, a computer that looked like a little tube, and it was just a workhorse, is no longer uh, supported by Apple. Their whole model in regards to their not just the phones, their hardware, is constantly on a three-year cycle. And, and that reason is that they need you to buy more products. How do you grow a cycle of billing billions and billions of dollars if you don't have a consumer buying it because they still work? They're going to have to hire the Maytag van pretty soon. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Adam Oldfield. You know him from Tech Talk. Usually on Fridays with Bill Kelly, but he's pinch hitting with us right now. He'll be on. You're going to be on tomorrow still with Bill, right? I am, yeah. Okay, good. So you'll hear him again. I'll hear him again. Maybe about the same thing. I don't know. But we're talking about Apple admitting that they have, in fact, slowed your phones down. Now, the reason they say they're doing it is not to force you to buy a new product. It's because batteries are an issue. And when your batteries wear down, everything else with the phone could go all floppy if they don't fix this. Adam, here's my thing, though, about Apple. And I'm an Apple user. I actually love Apple. I've always had Apple stuff. I enjoy it. I'm not a downer on Apple by any stretch. But if it's a battery issue, if this is about your old phone and the battery is simply not working as well, so that's why we have to fix it, why does Apple then not send something out to everyone and say, listen, 
your battery is now wearing out. Come to an Apple store and we'll replace that battery for 50 bucks or whatever it is, and you can keep your phone. Well, they are. I mean, that's the thing is they want you to do that. The iPhone 6s and so forth are the ones that are, are encouraged to go in. I think it works out to, in, well, in Canada, it's about 139. In the U.S., it's 79. Um, and they'll replace your battery. And by the way, if there's a problem, uh, you know, they, it may allow you to get the upgraded model based on any damages that are done. The main reason is they're claiming that the lithium ion is starting over time that when it gets colder, it becomes a, a challenge. And by this operating slowing down as a result, remember, it, they're just identifying that it's for your own safety that the battery will last longer, <clears throat> more or less, if it runs slower. I mean, that's equal to saying, you know, if you drive at only 20 kilometers an hour on the highway, you'll get an extra mileage out of your vehicle. Just, just drive it slower or just ride a bike. I mean, no, that doesn't make any sense. And they do want to offer you to come in and get your battery replaced. If you try to do it on your own, then first of all, you know, a battery cost you can order on China in a kit for about $35. And they'll ship you the kit, they'll give you a battery. I'm not telling you it's a safe battery and I'm not encouraging anyone to do this, but I'm just giving you an idea that the cost and value of you to come in and do this at Apple, you're gonna give up your phone for three business days, Let's be realistic. It will be five. Apple's busy. And then another $150 later, you get your battery replaced in your old phone. Of course, two upgrades later, you're still sitting in molasses mode, and you have to more or less wait that 300th of a second to, to push a button. Let, I like to also mention, Scott, when we say slow down, it's not earth-shattering. It's not like you're going to be more or less waiting and watching the spinning wheel for an hour while you're trying to open your email. We're talking probably a few seconds, but let's talk about how fast we move in today's age. We don't wait for anything. So, you know, my, my, my grandmother wouldn't have a problem waiting. However, everyone else, no, they would have an issue with the fact of how delayed it actually is. Oh, yeah. If there's a five-second video at the head of something you want to watch on, on YouTube, you say, I'll skip it. Forget it. I don't want to wait that five seconds. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even going to your calendar, and it's more or less, when do you want to meet? Let's meet at Thursday at 5, five o'clock. And you click the calendar. Let's identify what slow means. When you click it, 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, you know, it would probably take as long as this whole interview to more or less schedule an appointment. And obviously, many people would have a big, I would personally have a big issue with that because I'd be like, well, my life is over. There's no point in meeting. So, you know, this is one of the things is you have to identify is slow does not necessarily mean it's not functional. So Apple's really kind of playing on that. It's not going to hurt. It's just going to be a little slower, not to the point of which it doesn't work at all. It's just going to be more of an annoyance or a nuisance compared to what you used to have. What I really find difficult, <clears throat> excuse me, about this whole thing, though, is that Apple, more than, more than most companies, Apple is genius when it comes to promoting itself, to marketing. They have those, those you know, Steve Jobs used to do those things where the, the town hall, where they, I mean, Apple does marketing better than almost every other company. So Apple knows the perception is out there about this, that it's, for, it's just being done to force people to buy a new phone. They know that's out there. They're not dumb. So if you have a situation like this where they say there's a legitimate reason why the phone is slowing down, why not come out right up front and say this as opposed to not doing it where it looks then like you're hiding something? 
Well, I think um, they're claiming this isn't hiding. I think what's really being announced is there's always been a conspiracy that Apple was slowing your phone down and nobody was really arguing it. What was really becoming the media attention recently is the fact that Apple has now been held accountable for the sake that it was slowing down. And now that they've said, well, you're right, it is slowing down, but it's for your own good. And we're doing this for your own reasons. That's the issue. And, you know, I mean, we know this with Apple. They've done this with every launch of a product. Uh, I mean, heck, take a look at the new, the new iPhone X. I mean, first of all, all the charging bases, all of the components, all the plugs, they all have to be replaced. So to look at this and say this is now a matter of, geez, we should have came out and told you at the beginning, and, and you know, this has not been more or less a secret. It's just one of those, well, it's starting to become quite apparent, and especially First of all, remember, Scott, they were launching new iPhones with devices every two years. As of next year, Apple has announced, as of the 10, they're going to be launching new iPhones every year. And these yearly updates are going to really hinder those that are buying their phones and watching it slow down. So part of this was strategic on their part. Congratulations. Clap, clap for Apple. This is very good because they more or less have identified now in a very sweet way that, yeah, we've been slowing it down. Sorry you really didn't see the value in it, but it was for your own good. But don't forget, we're going to have a new iPhone available for you every year. That's right, folks. The new iPhone available every three months. So your two-year-old phone is pretty much a brick. So enjoy the speed as fast as you can, as long as it's a brand new one. At Oldfield, you can hear him. You can hear more of him tomorrow with Bill Kelly. Adam, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. Do not uh, do not miss him tomorrow. I don't know if they're going to be talking about this. There's so many other things. It's Christmas time. Everyone's buying technology, right? It's Christmas time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. The story online right now from the Waterloo Region record. It's from Pooslinch Township, which is on the way to Cambridge, kind of between here and there. There was a council meeting about the idea of whether or not the name of a street there should be changed. The name of the street is Swastika Trail. Swastika Trail. Now, on first blush, obviously most people, 99.9% of people hearing that name, would affiliate that, associate that with the Nazis and with World War II. The swastika was the symbol on the Nazi flags and everything else. So, of course, it has a negative connotation to many people. However... It was apparently, this, this street was named this uh, in the early 1920s based on the ancient religious symbol that was affiliated with good fortune. The swastika used to be not something that was associated with the Holocaust and millions of people killed in horrendous ways. The swastika used to be seen as a positive thing. Clearly not that anymore. And for the record, that I know of, nowhere on this street are there actually any swastikas. There's no symbols that I know of, that I've heard of, displayed here. It's just the name. So what I want to know from you tonight, in the minutes we have here, would you have changed the name? Understanding what the name means now, understanding what the name meant when it was created, when it was named that, would you have changed the name? Council, in a close vote, they decided after hearing a bunch of delegations that they were going to keep it. They said, first of all, they the neighborhood committee had had a vote and they voted 
the majority anyway to keep the name. And so council said, we don't want to upend the democratic process. We believe in the democratic process so that we're going to keep this name even though we know that chances are over the next number of years, now and again, it's going to continue to flare up again because we know that it's a, it's a, it's a name, it's a controversial name. What would you do with it? What would be your answer if you, in your street, if you had a street that was named Swastika Trail or some other, there's a creek, and I'm not even going to say the name because I don't even know if I can say the name on the air. I'm not going to take that chance. There's a r- creek that we pass over on a bridge up towards when we go up to rent a cottage every year of a, of a, of a people group that is a word we don't use now anymore. And every year we drive by, we go, huh. How can that creek still be named that creek? But historically, it was there, and so there's history behind it. What would you do? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. What would you do with a controversial name of a street? Would you change it? Or is that sort of giving in right now to political correctness and everything else where you say, you know what? No, why do we always have to give in to every complaint about anything? What would you do? See, I, this one, I, I, there's a lot of them that I would go with the latter. There's a lot of these things that I would stick with that one and say, wait, we don't have to relent to every single bit of political correctness. We don't have to back down every time someone has a complaint, do we? And the answer I would say is no. This one, boy, this one falls into some serious gray area, doesn't it? Maybe even more than gray area. It was not named after the symbol that the Nazis adopted. The Nazis adopted a symbol. But boy, when you have a name like this where, as I say, basically everybody alive today has a perception of what this is. And it's a negative thing. Mm. I, that This is the one, this is one of the ones where I would say, come on, like, it's time. And here's the thing that I really don't understand. What about the people who live on this street? Do you not think that when they tell someone, hey, what's your address? Well, I'll just take a right on Swastika Trail. Do you not think people go, wait, what? Sorry, what? Say that again? Yeah, Swastika Trail. Like Swastika, like Nazi Swastika. I, do you not think that that must happen to them all the time? And if that's the case, why not? Would it not be beneficial? They say they don't want to change all their address books and they're all, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I get that, but... If I lived on a street that had a name like that, I got to think I'm leading the charge in this particular case, not for every single political correct idea, but in this particular case, boy, oh boy, am I leading the charge to say, yeah, you know what? It might be time. Let's come up with something. Let's sit down and actually go to council and propose something that is better than this, just because I'm tired of every time I give my address, someone saying, what, like the Nazis? I think I would get tired of hearing like the Nazis if I was living on that street, I just, let's just come up with something a little nicer that does not involve Nazis. That's generally, I think a pretty good rule of thumb. Whenever you can avoid incurring comparisons or references to the Nazis in your daily life, you're probably ahead of the game. Anyway, Radley at 900chml.com. If you have a thought about that one, I'd love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML.
You have probably this year, if you are like most people, because it's been on a number of times, you've probably watched Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer at one point this year. And if you haven't seen it this year, you saw it last year or the year before. Or some point in the last, I think it's now 51 years. I think last year was the 50th anniversary. Or you've watched Little Drummer Boy, or you've watched Frosty the Snowman, or you've watched a bunch of others. They're all made by the same production company that was called Rankin Bass. Rudolph is surely the most famous of those Christmas specials, though. And I mention this because two of the original puppets from that show, from the making of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa and Rudolph, are now available for you to buy as a Christmas gift. Of course, the catch is you need $10 million to be able to do it. They are up for sale on eBay together, and that's in American funds, by the way. So, yeah, you're going to be paying a fair chunk to get them, but they are for sale, and they are the originals, apparently. And if you buy them, if you find those $10 million, you don't just buy the puppets. You don't just get the puppets. You get the puppets, but you get more than that. You get a terrific story that is behind these puppets. Rick Goldschmidt is a historian of Rankin-Bass, and if I'm correct, and we'll find this out in a minute, I believe he was also once upon a time the owner of these puppets, but he joins me now. Rick, how are you tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I understand uh, with all this going on, you are a very busy man these days. You, uh, There are lots of people like me calling to ask for you to tell the story. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> Before we get to your connection to it per se, um, Tell me, you're the historian for this company. You know the story behind this. Tell me the story of how this show was made, because it it was made sort of all over the place, I believe, including partly in our area. Right, exactly. Um, Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass had an office in New York, uh, sort of the madman of of the period. And um, they decided to get into the world of animation, and most of the animation was done in Japan. Um, they did this stop-motion form of animation called Animagic, and they hired the best animators in Japan, including Tad Moshinaga, who did Rudolph. And for the voice work, they went to Canada and got some of the best actors out of the, the, the old days of radio to perform these characters and bring them to life, even without seeing anything, hmm. like the puppets or or any kind of storyboards. And at least one of those voice actors, I believe, is still alive. We had Paul Souls, who played Hermie the Elf. He was on this show last year, right around this time. So they're, they were people from Toronto, Burlington, right up to the edge of Hamilton, which is where we are all in this area, were the voice actors for almost every one of the characters. Right, right. And I still I'm still friends with the guy who actually engineered and recorded all the voice actors, a guy named Bill Giles, who lives there and spends some time in Florida. Um, but some other actors are still living from Canada, too, like Corinne Conley, Alfie Scott, who was the voice of Charlie in the Box. Okay. I believe Carl Banis is still living. So, yeah, they were... Super talented. I actually became very good friends with Billy Mae Richards, who was the voice of Rudolph. And we did a lot of radio shows together over the years, and she was a sweetheart. So when this show is put together, and again, I think it's 51 years. I think last year was the 50th anniversary. But when this was done, did anyone with the company that had built this, that had put it together, did anyone expect this, first of all, to become a 
really a cultural touchstone? I mean, right off the bat, did anyone think this was going to be something people would be watching 50 years later? Well, they might have had a hint at that. They knew they were on to something great when they produced it, but they did it for the General Electric Company, and the idea was to promote houseware products for a couple of years. (laughs) And and Rankin-Bass did the commercials with the elves, the chief elf and the elf with the glasses and the elf with the sunglasses are showing off the products and the commercials, which you can see on YouTube. I posted them there. I actually own those commercials. Okay, so they make the TV show so they would introduce the characters to the public so that those characters could then become spokespeople in commercials for for products. (laughs) Right, because back then... Um, Christmas shows in general, like a Charlie Brown Christmas was sponsored by Coca-Cola. Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol was sponsored by Timex. And the Grinch was sponsored by the uh, bank. (laughs) So it was all mostly for not just kids, but for the entire family. And um, Rudolph's longevity, uh, I, I contribute to Romeo Muller's writing because he introduced all these new characters to the story, like the Bumble and Hermie the, the Dentist and Yukon Cornelius, and he did it in such a smart way. He made all the characters underdogs who triumphed in the end, and the villains always reformed, like the Bumble mm-hmm. becomes a Christmas tree decorator. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what... a very clever writing style that Rankin-Bass used. So whether they thought this thing was going to really catch on or just, as you say, be a, a vehicle to introduce characters for advertising, they could not, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming they didn't ever expect that the pieces of the, 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 the puppets, the background, the props, everything else would ever amount to anything that they would ever be worth anything. These, these are, they, nobody ever thinks. That's, the, that's what makes things valuable because people get rid of them. If they kept everything, they, nothing would ever have its value. They did not expect these things to matter. No, not at all. And actually, Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass were very career-driven, and it was always about the next project and the next film. They wanted to make bigger and better films their entire career, and they actually started making feature films and live-action movies, and they did Thundercats and all kinds of stuff, The Hobbit. Um, it wasn't about, you know, resting on your laurels and, you know, Rudolph and Frosty and all the things that really made them popular. Um, they wanted to do, like... The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. You know, they wanted to do something on that level, so they were always looking forward instead of backward. Okay, so Rick, when this finishes then, you've got all the, not you, but I mean they, the people who put this together, they've got all these puppets, they've got all this set material, everything else. What happens to the stuff? Where does it go? I mean, it obviously doesn't get thrown out, so where, how does it get disseminated? Well, the uh, Rudolph and Santa puppets that we're talking about came out of a collection that was on display at the Rockefeller Plaza at NBC for several years. They had a set of characters that they used in the production that they actually put on display in New York. But there's another Santa in Japan still, 
and there's other Rudolphs, and there's also the reindeer and all the other characters remained in Japan because that's where they they produced the show. And Tad Moshinaga, who passed away, there's an exhibit of his work on display right now with that Santa and reindeer and Mrs. Claus and some other things. So they didn't all just get thrown out like it said in some of the articles some of the fake news articles. <laughs> but these ones, uh, the, the ones... They remained in Japan. But the ones we're talking about, though, my understanding is they, they may have been on display, as you say, at Rockefeller Plaza, but they did at one time, for an extended period of time, end up in private hands and weren't necessarily treated like treasures. Yeah, Barbara Adams was the secretary for Rankin Bass, and I, we've become good friends over the years, and I met her at Arthur's Memorial a few years ago. And she took home the cast of Rudolph characters, and they were using them as decorations, uh, as their, her nephew was. And the family would bring them out at Christmas time and actually play with them. <laughs> Rudolph had Play-Doh stuck in his nose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so eventually, the nephew decided to sell Santa and Rudolph, and a friend of mine bought them. Now, did I they know at that time? Sorry, Rick, at that time, did they realize they were the original ones? Because of me and Arthur Rankin, we verified that they were the original ones. Uh, <laughs> and then we had them restored because they were in such rocky shape they couldn't even stand up. Um, they were really, you know, dilapidated. How were you able to determine? How were you able to determine that they were the originals, though? Because if they're in that bad shape, it must be hard to find the the, the things to prove that they are the real ones. Well, there's some core materials that were used by the Japanese that when you open them up, you can find all of these things. And um, there was actually a hole in the side of uh, Rudolph so that he could be attached to the sleigh. And um, there was wires for his nose and some Chinese paper. All these things can be identified by specialists. And we got screen novelties to work on them, and they're specialists. They actually found, because Santa was missing part of his mustache, (laughs) so they had to find the exact yak hair that was used for the mustache, and they made the other side. Um, So it's pretty... You have to be a specialist on this. And I actually owned a few of the puppets from the first Christmas, so I knew what they looked like and and how they changed their eyes and their mouths and all those kinds of things. But these did end up, these two did end up with you for a while, correct? You owned these for a while. Yeah, because my friend Kevin Kreiss and his business, Time and Space Toys, they sold toys that were based on the Rankin-Bass shows, so... He would bring them with me to different conventions. We had them at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago and Wizard World and some of my Borders book signings and things like that so that the fans could enjoy them. Um, Unfortunately, right now, they're not able to enjoy them, Mm. at least the two that are on eBay. What about all... I doubt anyone's going to pay that price. No, I I doubt that. uh, Well, you never know, but I doubt that, too. Someone just paid, what was it, $450 million for a painting, so who knows, but nonetheless. (laughs) Um, Right. What about all the other puppets? Where did they go? Because there were dozens of characters. Right. Some of them were given to the uh, the voice actors, like Danny Kaye, 
Arthur said he gave his to him. Um, he gave like some of the reindeer to people like Maury Laws and Romeo Muller, the writer. Um, but primarily, they stayed in Japan. And some of the ones that stayed in Japan are now on display in Bermuda, where Arthur lived most of his life. Um, there's an exhibit there that I opened up in Masterworks, which is a museum in Bermuda. So they're still around. I took some of them out uh, this year to Chiller Theater in New Jersey. We had Father Time, the Red Skelton Puppet, and Sister Teresa, Angela Lansbury, did her voice. And we had Smokey the Bear at the Shag Store out in Hollywood. <laughs> so I bring them around when I can. These, how did these though? So you own these for a while; they're in your possession. How how do you not end up as the owner? What happened? Well, um, the business that my friend ran wasn't doing so well, you know, when the <laughs> when we had the recession, and um, he decided to sell them to this private collector, and. Unfortunately, you know, they're used as more of a commodity now than they are the pop culture icons that they were. Um, but we did bring them around to quite a few places. And like I said, a lot of people got to enjoy them and take pictures of them and, and so on and so forth. So it was good that we had them for that time. I think what a lot of people would be surprised at, I was surprised at this reading this story today, is these are not large items these are not giant puppets that you would think of i mean they are the, the two of them uh, the picture that's online the two of them both very easily fit into a briefcase with a lot of room to spare these are quite small well santa is about um 14 to 16 inches he he's pretty big like when you see him in person you think oh he's bigger than i thought he was but rudolph is about eight inches or so so he He's about what you would think he would would have been. Um, I understand the bumble was 22 inches because I have an original press article from 1964 in my Arthur Rankin scrapbook book, and they they cite him at 22 inches. So he was probably the biggest of the cats. I agree with you that nobody is likely to pay $10 million for this, but the fact that there's been so much attention paid... Maybe it's because it's up for $10 million. Maybe it's so shocking a number that we're all paying attention. But I think there's something else here. I think we still, a lot of people, this show is, I, I don't know for what reason, but it means a lot to a lot of people. Why, why do people still, 51 years later, care about this show? Because technologically, it is so far in the past now. The stuff that is being done now is so far more advanced. Why do people still care about this? Well, the core of it is that it has heart. <laughs> and warm. Most stuff today is throwaway. You know, okay, it makes five hundred thousand or five hundred million the first weekend, but we forget about it two weeks later. It's it's so throwaway. And Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, they wanted quality stuff when they produced it. It wasn't about the money or getting something schlocky on the air. They really wanted to do something that would last. And the closest thing I can compare Rudolph to is The Wizard of Oz, the MGM film, because it brings in the island of misfit toys and all these characters, Hermie and Yukon and all these 
great characters. And like I said, they're all underdogs. They don't fit in society, and they find their place by the end of the special. And that's very satisfying. You can watch it over and over and over again and still get something out of it, just like The Wizard of Oz. So it really was about quality and heart and and making the best thing that you can make. And it just turned out that lasted 53 years. 53, okay, yep. It'll last a lot longer than that, I can tell you that. We only have a few seconds left, but assuming no one pays $10 million for this, if they do, good for them. They can do with them what they want, I suppose. But assuming, them, what would you like to see happen with these things? Where should they be? What, what, should they, what should be done with these puppets? If you had your choice, if you could do it all, what would, what would happen with them? Well, I think they should be in a museum where people can see them, first of all. And, and maybe something that travels around, you know, so people all over can see them. Um, like a traveling museum exhibit that I could be a part of and put some of my stuff in because I have things Arthur Rankin gave me that are very valuable too, and I'm not going to sell them. Um, So I just think people should be able to share them and enjoy them. If you are interested in more, hearing more about Rick or reading more about what he has done as a historian with Rankin Bass, uh, Rick Goldschmidt, you can find his books, you can find other things at his website, miserbros, M-I-S-E-R-B-R-O-S dot com. There's lots of stuff on there. Rick, I uh, really appreciate you taking time today to do this. Hey, Merry Christmas. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for the time, and we really appreciate this. Okay, you have a good holiday. You too. That is uh, Rick Goldschmidt. Again, Miser Bros, M-I-S-E-R-B-R-O-S dot com. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.